What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs, your hobby content alternative. I'm your host, Brett McGrath. We are dropping another conversation with a collector that matters, not unlocking a new character this week, reoccurring guest on the program, my man Chris McGill from the Card Ladder team. We were trading some DMs and I said, you know what, this would be a fun topic to dig into. So we're going to talk about analyzing card prices as if the pandemic boom never happened. This one was fun. We could have gone Broadway, probably could have been another hour or two. So tried to consolidate it. But there were a lot of good nuggets on uh, what just transpired with the collectibles market and trading cards specifically what is going on now and what the future might bring to us with big players in the mix like fanatics we cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time hopefully you enjoyed this one follow subscribe hit all the buttons most importantly tell a damn friend you're enjoying stacking Sabs podcast without further ado you know the drill let's get to the conversation all right excited for this conversation um chris i was listening to the crossover actually i finished it up today and I think there's a good launching off point for this conversation because I think you touched on a little bit of this in your ep- last episode, but you got a question from a former guest of this show. Question slash comment, I think, it, but it was from Black Griffin Cards. And his comments were basically like, it was the spirit of his question was about, you know, can we be over like talking about the the the, the boom and the crash? And when I was like, as you were trying to like unpack his question, I was thinking about it myself. And I was like, you know what? Like, I I get really tired of this too. But then like my, from my end, I was like, you know what? Like, I think it's important to talk about these things because at the end of the day, we all buy cards. And I think having some conversation that's going on where we know maybe when to buy cards or when not to buy cards might be a good thing. And obviously it's not something I want to spend every waking moment thinking about, but I know it's important to visit from time and time again. So that's kind of what we're here to talk about. The current market um, and maybe the current market if the boom of the pandemic didn't happen. So excited that you're back and we're here to chop it. You're here to chop it up with me. So how are you doing, man? Doing well. Great to be back. Love the intro because uh, Black Griffin Cards is making a good point. And he's coming at it from like a, a really consistent point of view because he didn't want to talk about the market when it was going crazy, when it was booming. And he doesn't want to talk about it when it's correcting. Uh, you know, I'm more, I'm a little bit more concerned, like for myself and my own intellectual honesty and and uh in fairness to say well I, I was a person who was really interested in, in discussing the market as it was going up and thinking about it and being critical of it but also celebrating it, it, it and then it's only right if on the other side uh now that we find ourselves in the predicament that many markets find themselves in especially markets that at one time had become an area of interest for investors. It's it's only right now that we sort of talk about the fallout, that we talk about the correction or crash, if people would like to call it that. That's a scary word. And it like sort of has implications that don't necessarily apply here, I don't think. But whatever the word we want to use is, 
for for a person from my position, it's important to talk about it too. And then I think big picture, if I wanted to see the glasses half full, if we all wanted to, I think we have to psychologically process this moment in the history of sports cards. We have to be honest about it. We have to process it so that we can get to the next moment. And it was, so we can get to what I, I had a thing on the Hegelian dialectic. I won't go into that on this show and put your <laughs> listeners to sleep. I just put our listeners to sleep. But uh, yeah, that's where I'm at with it, Brad. I'm doing well. I, I love it. Um, and I also maybe a disclaimer before we get into everything and is I know I can raise my hand. I think you can, too, by just listening to your content and some of the cards that you bought during this period. Like, I think we can both just like very like blatantly say like we we have bought cards at probably the wrong time in this market and we probably paid a lot more than we should especially maybe how prices are but i also think like there is something that i want to layer in here and maybe get your feedback before we dive into it is that like there are situations that kind of stand outside the the market and analyzing the trends that are you and your personal connection with specific cards in your own hunt. And if those cards become available um, and you do have that crack that sometimes like the conditions, the ups and downs, they don't even matter. They don't matter because that is your chance as a collector of a player set parallel, whatever to get a card that you're chasing. And so I want to make sure it's really clear up front. Like irrational buying is one of my favorite parts of the hobby. And, uh, (laughs) I don't care if I'm the all-time high. And I would imagine in certain cases, like you probably feel the same way, but wanted to get that out of the way before we get out, get into the nitty gritty. Do you, do you have any commentary on that point before we move forward? No, I think it's a really good point. I, I do. I, I do. It, it makes me think about one thing, Brad. It makes me think about this. Uh, when the hobby really first got this like huge sort of tidal wave of interest from like people who were familiar with cards or people who saw an investment opportunity in cards or just whoever, you know, we had like this tidal wave in early 2021. I think one of the things that happened was they sort of surveyed the landscape of available cards at that moment. So they went to, you know, the the big elites or premier offerings from the major auction houses and and they went to the 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 highest items on eBay. And I think maybe they thought this is the sum total of the card market offering. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and maybe it's not every card, but it represents it, you know? So like, if you, if you're looking at like a, a housing market for a city, every house is not for sale, but you probably have a decent representation of all the different tiers that you could get into if you want. And it's, it's probably pretty consistent you know, but I think when somebody was coming into the hobby and they looked and they surveyed the landscape of available cards, they had no idea how dramatically that landscape was going to change and the certain types of cards that were going to become available as a result of skyrocketing prices. So I think like there was um, there was thought that like this will be controversial to Michael Jordan collectors, but there was thought that his Fleer rookie was his best card and that obtaining that card in a PSA 10 is the best possible Michael Jordan card that you can get. And that's just not true 
to me and to a lot of Michael Jordan collectors. That's just not his best company. But if you were new, if you were surveying the scene, if you were sort of taking in the conventional wisdom, that was the best card. And so, you know, you're very excited. Maybe you have a pocket full of newly minted crypto wealth that you can't wait to spend. And you just kind of, you know, you go crazy and you buy a FLIR PSA 10 Jordan, which is a great card. Very iconic, super important card. Let's not, but but it's not the card to say, I have to go all in right now because I'll never get another chance. That, that's not that card. You're going to get another chance next month and the month after that and the month after that and the month after that. You're always going to get chances at that card. Like historically, that card has been selling, you know, with pretty regular frequency for years and years and years. All right. So I think like there was a there was an informational asymmetry between people coming in and very excited on the one hand versus what this market truly has to offer on the other. And I think that's kind of part of the reason why we saw bubbles created around the Fleer Jordan, around the Topps Chrome Refractor rookie of LeBron and Kobe and Curry. I think that's why we sort of saw those cards get to unimaginable prices <laughs> that they are now, you know, down 40, 50, 80% from in some cases. I, I think that's part of the problem is that, you know, there's the the informational problem was was a big one. And so that relates to your point, Brett, just because like there are those cards worth uh going all in for for me as a collector, that they do exist, but it's important to know what they are and to be able to distinguish them from cards that you're going to get another chance from next month, next week. Of course, we're like, before we even get started going off the rails a little bit, which is classic, this type of conversation. But I want to like, I I love what you just said. And I want to throw one right back at you because I think listeners who just heard what you said can absorb that and take that in. But then there might be this thought And one of the examples that as you were talking through the Flair Jordan that came to my mind is one that I've seen recently is the the Giannis Rookie Gold Prism. Um, This card during that same period of time, I think was like a half a million dollar card. Um, And, you know, last sale, I think was like 150, 170. And that card, I look at that card and it has all the traits for me. Premier brand, gold parallel, 10. One of the greatest players of all time. So as someone listened to you describe that, which that bubble and those cards and, you know, easy to manipulate and all that stuff, like, is it just like an element of current economic conditions, our hobby resetting? Like, how would you discuss like a card like that Giannis Gold Prism based on kind of what you just said about the Fleer Jordan? Yeah, no, you're right, dude. That card checks a lot of collector boxes and it certainly is not immune in any way, shape, or form from basically a 70% loss of value. And that's a case where I would have looked, I mean, to your point, that that Giannis checks the boxes, man. It does. It's a it's it's maybe maybe it is partially economic conditions. To me, I think uh if if I had to find a a culprit maybe for why the fall was so precipitous with that card, mm. it's that it has come to market so many times mm. that it sort of has started to feel 
as if there's not only 10 copies out there, but that there's many more. So I mm. think since its first sale at half a million, because I I was looking at this card, this card has perplexed me. Since it, it, it actually sold twice at about, it integrated BGS 9.5, it sold twice for over half a million dollars, just, just a tick over. But since that first sale, I'm pretty sure it has five sales on the books over a period of about 18 to, to 20 months. I mean, is that a ton of sales? No. Uh, you know, that's that's maybe one sale every three to four months, roughly, maybe, if you average it out. But for a card of that magnitude, uh, it is a lot. And and it doesn't allow for the cre- the it doesn't allow for scarcity in the markets when copies continuously are coming forth for sale. And then it creates this momentum, this downward momentum. But then, you know, there are other factors impacting that Giannis too. One of them is that he's a prospect. Well, he's not a prospect, but he's a modern player whose market is going to fluctuate with the changing gravity of his legacy in mainstream sports discussions. In other words, out of sight, out of mind. And, and that's sort of been the case for Giannis for the last month or two. It won't always be that way, but that's sort of how it is right now. So those are some of the factors. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have to raise my hand here and say, I've bought one of ones, I you know, of, of great players, one of ones of, of great modern players in particular, that I have no doubt have taken huge hits since I bought them. You know, like that's just, that's a, that's a, that's a matter of fact reality. You know, that's sort of why I have to, I, I try to preface my, or I try, try to cushion my answers to these questions with like, this is what I would do as a collector, knowing and being able to testify full well to the fact that there's there's no perfect strategy here. Uh, there's always a risk that it's not going to go well, at least not in the short term. <laughs> I, I hope people who are listening understand and. Luckily, there's a lot of educated, smart people that listen to the show, which I'm very grateful for. But just if you're new to cards and you're listening to this chat, I hope that opening just shares, tells the story of all the nuances that go into not only player profiles, specific cards, years, because what happens is people create content and it's just a blanket over everything. And so I think there's so many variables that in there's the buying pool of these cards varies and there's all this stuff. And we're going to get into that in this conversation. So let's get it going. Um, So we're going to talk about analyzing card prices as if the pandemic boom never happened. A lot of stuff's going to be talked about in this one, but I want to start maybe to set the stage for this chat. Maybe start here, Chris, hypothetical situation, which could actually be a reality. I would imagine 20 years from now, you'll still be in the hobby, probably doing hobby things, uh, maybe working on card ladder, maybe working on something else. But you're on a panel at the National and someone asks a question, someone much younger and, and is like, what happened during the, the pandemic boom, this thing that I always hear about? Like, how would you describe that period of time in cards to anyone who might not have experienced it firsthand? I'm going to take a stab at it, and then I'm going to turn the tables, and I, I want to hear you take a stab at it, too. I, I don't think anybody is more uniquely positioned to answer it than you are, knowing your trajectory, your timeline, the years you've been in the hobby, and sort of, unlike almost any others, you have had the courage to put yourself out there and 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 track your 
personal development in the hobby, which is amazing. I mean, I, I was thinking about how difficult it would be to, to like, I, I do not come close to having a mastery over something like what's, you know, all the sets of, of the major sports and just like a background knowledge about them, you know, like 57 tops basketball, mm -hmm. 86 Fleer basketball, 52 tops baseball, you know, just and, and then all the modern stuff. Like I don't even have close to a mastery. I know a few things about a, a few sets, but I was thinking, what would it take for somebody to truly have a mastery of this animal kingdom of sets, it, you would need to be like somebody who who sort of studies taxonomies. You know, you would need to be somebody who 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 can who can wrap their mind around such a wealth of information and sort of catalog it and and document it. You would need to do a lot of your own, I think, note taking and documenting. So just the 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 size and scope of knowledge needed to truly have a mastery over the history of sports card products is like a real, a real behemoth of a project. I think over time we'll all approach, we'll get closer and closer to having it as we learn more and more and sort of interests continue to, to expand is like naturally happens. But like, that's a testament, I think also to sort of how immature in a grand scheme, our market and our participants like myself, I, I came in in 2016, you know, other people have come in, uh, more recently or less recently than that, roughly, but sort of that's, that's a question I think about a lot is, is, is how much there is to learn, how, how little a person like myself knows and how long it's going to take for me to get there, both in terms of knowledge of the history of the products and the sets, and also knowledge of the market and many things like that. Okay. So a little dose of humility there that just something in your statement maybe think about it okay so i'm on this panel uh and we're talking about how do we sort of describe what happened and uh, i mean the pandemic is the is the jump off point for that discussion without a doubt but it's just so interesting because if i start talking about the pandemic i think i'm going to mischaracterize what the heart of the hobby renaissance is slash was at the, at the heart of it was that the pandemic was an accelerant that caused people to rediscover and also have the opportunity and time and leisure to dig into collectibles. But the pandemic didn't make the pandemic was wasn't the it wasn't the substance. It was the fuel that that helped the substance reach so many more people. But you have to start there. So I talk about the pandemic. I think I talk about three like major things that sort of happened right then during the uh the start which was the tragic passing of Kobe then it uh which was i think in late January of 2020 then you have the um you have the stay at home orders and Rudy Gobert touching the microphone and then you had which was in March of 2020 and then you have the last dance documentary in May of 2020 which like filled this important void of needing some live, unpredictable, like like we know what happens, but like it was new content, it was fresh content. We needed some fresh sports content to rally around. And then it also just so happens, I think that Michael Jordan and Kobe, that content with or without the pandemic, but especially with the pandemic, made a lot of people 
think about collectibles and the 90s all over again. And so that's that's a big part about it. And then sort of I, I would just say like what I and then you have to talk too about like the the generational thing, like the millennials and the Gen Xers who like collected cards as a kid, whether it was like 70s and 80s style, and they have strong nostalgia for those periods, people who were kids during that era, or if it's 90s and people have strong nostalgia for that era of collecting. And this this unsynchronized but simultaneous return to cards that sort of like we were all doing it. You were doing it. I was doing it. Josh at Card Ladder, my business partner was doing it. Like so many people, Black Griffin cards was doing it. So many different people were sort of having this return. We didn't know about each other. We didn't know that we all were doing it together, but it was happening. And it's like, there's something bigger in it. There's something like, I've, I've always rationalized it as it was a, a, it was the need, the psychological need for us as sort of newly minted, serious adults to find something unserious, fun, distracting, community-based, creative, expressive, something that's just the opposite of the doldrum of day-to-day professional life. We needed, we all sort of, it's, it was like a reaction that we all sort of had at the same time to the same circumstances of adult life in modern times. Like we, we needed this escape. And it just so happened that cards were probably a part of a lot of our childhoods. And it, they just were a great, a great fresh terrain that we could go and and plant these seeds of creativity and all these needs that we sort of have underneath the surface. Like we could, we could dig into them through this thing. Like that's a huge part of this story is like these people returning and these people staying. Like I want to put like a drop a pin in that and we'll come back to it. But like, there's reason to think that like lots of people are staying even as the market gets very, that was scary right now, but okay. Let I, I would love to hear what your answer would be to that one on that panel, right? Yeah. So I think just in reflecting on my own personal experience, and I've been thinking about this a lot, I am not sure that we will ever have another uh, series of events or environment or conditions that exist that would reflect more of the theory of natural selection and Darwinism and the Galapagos Islands and all of that. Um, And I just think about myself and being like the example, right? If we're talking Charles Darwin would be like a finch and understanding how that finch adapts to survival and all that stuff. But if you look at that, like we as individuals had to evolve based on the prices, based on the content, based on the market conditions. And many people just they see you later. Like you were talking about this on your show, like how you were just like, you know what? Like I pulled open the people that I followed and I was just seeing like how many of these accounts are inactive or inactive. And it was like, you know, like maybe one out of every three or four people, like just even you haven't, haven't posted in a year plus. So I just think that that's the story. And that's the, uh, the line for me, because when I was trying to figure it out, 
Um, I was trying to find my footing and passion, but it wasn't until I understood the why behind my own collecting and meeting other individual collectors that not only have had survived, but had been doing it for 20, 30 years and were thriving, understanding those individual collectors' mentality, their passion. That's where I felt like not only I began to grow as a collector, but like it was like fuel on the fire because it was the education. It was everything else. And now I feel like, you know, I have in the matter of, you know, three years and it's just not me. It's so many other people that I talk with every day have grown uh, and matured so much where it's not that the hobby isn't just like, it's just part of our lives. Like it's, it's literally like when we're not doing our responsible thing, we're searching for our cards and, 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 and people ask us why, and we can't even explain it. And I don't know, that's really powerful. So that would never have happened probably unless we went through the trials and tribulations of all the bullshit and all the things we don't like about the hobby and all the losses and learnings and all that stuff. But yeah, I, I think a lot about just Darwinism in, in the hobby during the, the pandemic and kind of that's where we're at now. It's so true. I I, I think about that too, because like, yeah, I, we were doing this thing kind of like looking at how many people of the people I follow on Instagram are still active. And like, I had a very similar number to you, maybe like one out of four roughly has, has stopped posting. But as I thought about it more, I'm not quite sure that Someone stopping on Instagram means that they left the hobby. Like I was sort of assuming that the two meant the same thing. But then I was sort of thinking about this account that I saw who recently posted um, Bam Adebayo's Prism Black One of One in his rookie year. And other- Pretty good card after last night. Oh, man. Dude, he, did this, he did this like a week or two ago. Okay. And he, started, he starts rolling out these Adebayo grids. And I was like, I was like, holy crap. I was like, I I was like, who is this? Why is this showing up in my feed? Maybe a hashtag or something that I followed. No, it wasn't. It was, it was a person who I'd been following from years ago. And this was the first post they had made in over two years. They hadn't posted anything. They never posted this card. They hadn't posted other cards. At least I don't think so. Uh, and I, because I was just looking, I was like, "Who is this?" I scrolled and I saw that the that the previous post before these Adebayo grails started showing was from over two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, <laughs> "I was like, damn, this guy went dark for two years." <laughs> and you know, maybe it's not because he stopped collecting. Clearly, I don't think that's the case. Maybe it's not because he left the hobby. Maybe he did though. Maybe he took a break and then this sort of brought him back. I don't, but I don't think so. I think, I think there's a lot of people who sort of went away from Instagram. There, there's definitely people who left just because they left the hobby. I think that has happened. But I think there's also people who have left social media because like it got so gross. Mm-hmm. The hobby on social media got really gross for a, a period of time. And and now maybe it feels a little safer. A little more pleasant to to return to hobby Instagram. Yeah, no, totally uh, fair. I'll have to try to. I'd love to see that card. So uh, I'd, I'll have to have you send that to me, um, and maybe we'll put out who that sure. uh, collector is. Um, but do you think that the the pandemic boom did more damage or good for the hobby as a whole? Because there's a lot of different ways and elements to look at. It. Like new people were entered, but 
A lot of people paid high prices. Some people continue to stay sick around. Like, what is your take on it? Okay, great question. Did the pandemic do, for the hobby, do more harm than good? I want to like, just sort of have a little, a little bit of, without derailing, have a little bit of sensitivity towards like, the pandemic was like a real thing and it really like impacted people's lives in ways that are much bigger and more important than card collecting. And, you know, people died, people got sick. Um, you know, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to just trivialize the pandemic into, and I know you don't intend to either into mm-hmm. something that only matters in the context of you know, how much did it grow or hurt our hobby. But like, we, we acknowledge that. So uh, just to give it the, the seriousness it deserves. But in terms of how the pandemic is like a global phenomenon as a macro economic phenomenon impacted the hobby, on balance, it, I, I think, look, I can come up with a laundry list of the harms that it did <laughs> or like sort of that it contributed to or that it brought forth. But on balance, I think it, it was it was good. It was, it was, even though, you know, if, if this is a you have this answer has to be nuanced because myself, I've taken fat losses on cards that I bought at heights, at market heights or close to market heights during 2021, 2022 in particular. So, like if somebody only bought cards during 2021 and 2022, uh, and then the market came down a lot you know, they've suffered financial harm. And for that person, it's hard to say that the pandemic was on balance good. They could still find some good. They could be happy that they returned to the hobby. They could be happy that, you know, the pandemic brought them this 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 amazing hobby. Like, but maybe <laughs> there's also the fact of like, well, you know, bought some items that lost a lot of value and it sucks. And that's Let me dig into dig into that for a yeah, second. Sure. So, like some of your cards, like I know, like the traits you look for and the players that you collect, and it's just like the easy one to call out, especially because it's the finals. Is the the Okage Black one of one, right? Like, obviously, all the thi- we and you you talked about the Mahomes effect. Like Mahomes has done every possible thing that you could want a player of his caliber to do, and yet his cards are still going down. But, you know, with that card specifically, you've got his best card, I would say, his best card. You own it. He's in the finals right now. 1-1. I still think Denver's in a good spot. I think they'll be fine. Um, don't don't throw a shade on me, uh, Heat fans uh, <laughs> out there, or converted Heat fans. Um, but whatever you paid for that card, like, you could say, and people might say, like, there's no way I'd pay for that now. I, I think personally, there likely is maybe more people that would, but that's another story. But like, if you're not selling that card and you're holding that card because you are a collector and you want that to be part of the story you tell with your co- collection and you hold that card for the next 30 years, like, do does this part of the story even really matter? Like, does it matter? Like the fluctuations like in and out of like the the year day to day and i know some people who are down 80 percent on some cards would have their pitchforks and say of course it matters but like from a collector's perspective like if you're not if you don't have intention to sell the cards in the next decade or two does this period of time really matter yeah it's a great point that's sort of the cult the long-term collector's hack is like you sort of you have a really 
huge temporal cushion to make mistakes on top of because there always is sort of the hope that it will wash out over enough time, over 10, 20, 30 years. If, if you were, if one were to be like ruthlessly, ruthlessly rational economically, you might say it still does matter what the market value for that item is because you might be missing opportunities to acquire even better or even more important cards to your collection if you're able to sell one card because something else has become even more attractive or at an even better discount. Like that, that has to be taken into account. But like if you create a situation for yourself, like like a, a one of one of a great player that's at the top of their card hierarchy then you almost sort of get to escape that too, because it's just like, well, I wanted to climb the mountaintop of this player's cards. I did that, you know, the satisfaction of that is, does have a premium, a buyer's premium, if you will, but it doesn't go to the house. It just goes to the ether, but uh, (laughs) it might disappear. But like you are literally like you have this card, you paid for this card and the hobby has gone down, the market has gone down, but you have seen, you've seen your player continue to elevate to the heights where he is today, where anyone who's collecting a specific player wants to see their player in the championship. So it's like, I don't know, like, I know you as a collector, it's like you, you own that card and it's like the pride of ownership. It's like, to me with, and it's not for everyone, but for collectors, like you, it's like the pride of ownership. It's like everything else going on. It's just like noise. And it's like the dog sitting at the table where the house is on fire. And he's drinking coffee. It's like, whatever. Like I'm, I'm chilling. I, I'm fine. Like, so I don't know, like that thread, I feel like whether it's your Jokic or somebody else's card, like, I feel like that doesn't get pulled enough because that's why we do it. You know, we, we do it so we can be a part of these sorts of moments and you're hitting it right now with a player like Jokic and that, Finite. Yeah, man. I mean, I just I, I want to be really uh, careful not to sort of um, stumble into the idea that there's uh, there's like this. You know, one of the words has been sort of tossed around in the hobby lately, sometimes about cards, but more so coming from people who are continuing to push card adjacent categories like memorabilia, which people love. You know, I don't. It's not my cup of tea, but people love game use memorabilia and sneakers and stuff, jock straps in some cases. <laughs> and people love, you know, other ticket stubs is another example. And, and uh, you know, I've seen the term sort of thrown around that just makes me nervous, anxious, and queasy, which is recession-proof, which is... You know, it, on the surface, literally, it means like this item will not, you know, necessarily go down if if the general economic condition goes down in value, which like might be true for a handful of things. I think it's very, very difficult to predict what those things are. In fact, I almost would speculate that if an item is being designated as recession proof, it's got a very decent chance that it won't be. Because recession proof is like a whistle that only investors hear that makes them gravitate to something. And when they gravitate to it, 
they push the market for that item to such a maximum that it has to retreat at some point. So sort of acknowledging something as recession-proof is almost a self-defeating proposition. But even just the idea that something is recession-proof is is something that I just, I don't want to veer towards it. I don't want to veer mm. towards the idea that there's a silver bullet or that over a long enough time horizon, everybody wins, you know, because I, it just, it might not be true. It could be true, but it might not be. And so, you know, that's just, that's, that's one of the things where I just say, I hope it works out. I've certainly got uh, to go on such a great ride collecting Jokic that you know, it's, it's priceless in a certain sense to have been a part of it and it's led to other opportunities and so on and so forth. Like nothing can be analyzed in a vacuum. You know, you have to look at all the different dominoes that fall as a result of that domino falling. And it's been a lot of really cool ones that are tough to put monetary value on. And I think like there are ways to take as safe of an intelligent, thoughtful approaches as possible. There definitely are levels to the sophistication of, of approach. So, but I, I still just get a little, I'm like, yeah, I hope it works out, you know, but like, is there, a, there's, there, it, it, there's layers of risk, you know, like there's the risk of like, how will this era age over time? Like how will Jokic finish out his career, which is like, still has half of it yet to play out, you know, like how will collectively, yeah, there's lots of questions. I guess that's just what I'm saying. So th- there are questions, and I think one of the questions a lot of collectors have, including myself right now, and it's not so much on the cards, you know, under $1,000. It's more like when you start getting to $1,000 plus, uh, and you start to see cards start to fall, you know, f- over the last couple of years, it's like trying to jump in and figure out, like, is it a good time to buy this card right now? And I think it's all situational, and it varies by the risk tolerance of the collector and their financial situation. But you're in data a lot. You're seeing the CD sales on a regular basis. Is there a good lens that we can look at, look at specific cards and say, like, is, is there a prudent approach now to buying in this new era where cards are going down? Or, yeah, I just maybe dig into that, just like the buying of it all and what you've seen from just like a collector perspective. It's the million dollar question of the moment. Uh, you know, like if if anybody does know for sure, they're probably keeping the answer close. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I'll tell you a few things from my point of view, looking at data. The one index and card ladder of like the 28 or 30 that we have, the one that has a positive percentage change over the last year is pre-war vintage. <laughs> pre-war vintage has done well over the last year. So it's up like 5% over the last year, and it's up 43% over the last two years. So very impressive, especially considering market conditions. But you know what's interesting is that over the last 20 years, roughly, it's it has increased by a factor of a little bit over fivefold. All right. And that's a lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, any, if, if, if I purchased a piece of real estate 20 years ago and it, it increased fivefold, I would be very happy about that. 
But if you compare it to something like Card Ladder's football index, which like is a is an interesting index because it has almost five thousand cards in it, which is like you know that's when when uh, a lot of times when uh, when we use stock indexes or you know things like that, they are uh, those indexes are are constantly in flux. Like the S and P five hundred is constantly rotating in new stocks to make sure that it represents the five hundred largest cap stocks. So like survivor bias factors in because you never find out about the companies that go to zero. The index is only composed of the 500 biggest companies, okay? <laughs> Whereas like these indexes don't have survivor bias. These indexes do have cards that go to zero. These indexes do have players who completely flame out. You know, Davis Mills, I, I don't know. I don't want to insult anybody's player, right? But like <laughs> this- I, I can't get over the Zach Wilson stars and stripes. Uh, unworn shield. <laughs> yes, okay. Bingo. <laughs> Great example. All right. So like a card like that will be included in this index, whereas in the card letter football index, whereas a mm. card like that may have belonged to like the S&P 500 for one point, mm. but it will be long gone now. Okay. So even with that said, the foot, so pre-war 5X, 20 years. Football, 26X, 20 years. 26, a 26. And that's with, of course, <laughs> the massive correction that we've seen. Now, football at one time was 50x over the last 20 years. And now, you know, the football category index and card letters down 49% over the last year, which is brutal, but uh, absolutely brutal. And I've I've sort of certainly borne the brunt of that, having a decent-sized football collection of Le'Veon Bell and Christian McCaffrey. But uh Football 26X. Okay, so I'm bringing this up to say uh, pre-war, 5X, much smaller multiple, much smaller multiple over the long run than football as a category. And I think maybe there's something to that. May, and this, this is like going to be you know, Captain Obvious here, but maybe stuff that hasn't gone up by absurd multiples has better future prospects on average from this moment looking forward than stuff that has experienced bizarre levels of return uh, on price over the last 20 years. So I think maybe there's something to that. Maybe, you know, identifying stuff that sort of never became, and so like, it's like why, right? Like that's, that's the, empirical side of it but what's the what's the what's the cause why i think one of the reasons why is because the stuff that has had those um large multiples was targeted to some extent by investors whereas stuff that has much smaller multiples hasn't been as targeted by investors and i think we're seeing you know whether it's uh, real estate, whether it's cryptocurrencies, whether it's cards, when a category becomes targeted by investors, it almost inevitably gets accelerated to its most 
it, it, it gets pushed to its ceiling as fast as possible. And then when the ceiling is met, time for the investors to leave, especially in an environment where, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, you know, I made a bunch of money right here. And then I can go put it into a, uh, a bond, you know, like the two-year treasury yield is like four and a half percent, which like isn't keeping up with inflation necessarily, but it's still a pretty good return to sort of survey the landscape. And it's just sort of like in this environment, things get things get complicated in that fashion. Like here, this was a uh, this was a tweet that I saw uh, the other day that I think like speaks to the impact of investors on a market and sort of what their mindset is. And it, and it was actually all too perfect because of who the subject of this tweet was. But this comes from a guy on Twitter named SFR Investor. And he says this, I recently spoke to a dentist from California. He bought three $800,000 homes in Scottsdale, planning to Airbnb them in early 2022. He invested all of his savings. Why did he do it? Because the rates were so low, the interest rates were so low that it was a guarantee. That's what the dentist said. Well, now those homes are upside down in between $100,000 to $250,000 each. And this dentist, shout out to all the dentists, is struggling to get bookings for his Airbnb. And the tweet, the, the final sentence of the tweet is, Real estate is a hard game. And I just think that's a decent story mm. that reflects on markets that become the object of fascination for investors is that they will, you know, <laughs> they are like the idea of homes as investments. I understand the logic of it. I understand the, the purpose of it. But the concept of a home for most people is something that provides you with shelter and space for the duration of your life. But because, you know, there was there was this room to push it higher and people would still pay more and more and people would still give larger and larger percentages of their paychecks because guess what? You need a place to live. That logic pushes these markets, our market, real estate market, it just pushes those markets to their absolute absurd extreme. And then it has to, it has to exhale and, and correct. And so like, maybe that's what these numbers in the card market are a proxy for is this is a market that hasn't been pillaged by investors. So maybe it's, you know, a safer place to operate as a collector, which is like a dumb way to have to approach collecting because like, oh, I have to filter the stuff that I like based on, you know, do investors want to to get involved in the market for it? But, you know, here we are. Oh, man. Dentists buying mansions in Scottsdale. That's where we're at. And shout out Davis Mills. I wouldn't have my new quarterback in Indianapolis without him spraying that touchdown on my team that was laboring. <laughs> so shout out for Davis Mills and the mention. Uh, we we were uh, talking about this episode. You threw one back to me. They were like, I, and I was like, okay, I think Chris wants to talk about this. So let's talk about this. And it's along these same lines, but it's the how much further uh, can we drop and have we reached the point where we'd be if the pandemic boom 
had never occurred. So like, like the, the floor is yours to address that. Yeah. The big question. I think uh, we are, are upon looking at the data, we are well ahead of schedule compared to where we would be if the pandemic had not occurred well ahead of schedule. So it's sort of just like eyeballing, you know, like not just back of the envelope style, look at a graph, look at the slope of the graph before March of 2020. And then sort of with your mind's eye, project where that graph would be at if the same rate of growth, the slope of the graph stayed consistent until today. And any graph I can find that's like an aggregate graph, you know, like a category graph, any graph I can find still shows that prices, you know, because basically what these indexes are saying is what's that, what's the price level? And the price level is still like much higher than where it would have been had the slope of the two or three years prior, the rate of growth of the two or three years prior continued to today, which then opens up the question, well, what does that hold for the future? You know, does do we continue to see prices decline? Will we continue to see, you know, a loss of people participating in the hobby? Will things stabilize? Will they turn around? And one of the numbers I like to look at is aggregate sales volume, which is a number that we have internally at Card Ladder, but that we don't publish publicly. We need to figure out a way to package it and publish it publicly because it's important data. But so in the month of May, across the secondary marketplaces that we track, which is like, you know, all the big auction houses plus eBay, plus MySlab, stuff like that, there was roughly ballpark number here, $175 million in sales. And this is we we go through and we take out, you know, baseball bats. Gloves, jerseys, shoes, <laughs> stuff like that. We take it out. We go in and we take it out. So it's just cards. And like within that, there's there's also like a bit of boxes and cases. Like when boxes and cases sell on eBay or on a marketplace, you know, an auction house or something, like we'll pick up that too. But like most of the purchasing of wax is happening either from retail at the retail level. So, you know, someone like David Adams, which we don't track, or uh, in the in the card shop, at the, at the local card shop level, or in breaks, or, you know, which is probably the biggest share of it all. We don't track any of that. And we don't track uh, in-person deals, whether it's card show deals or deals that happen at shows or trades that happen on Instagram or whatever purchases that happen over social media. We don't track any of that except when people report it to us. So like there's a small number of that, but I would we're not even gathering, you know, a meaningful percentage of it. We, but we do get some of the more high profile and interesting ones. Okay. So with all that stuff excluded, which is like a ton of market activity, uh, just the market that we track, which is roughly the secondary market for singles with some wax mixed in. 175 million a month, which projects to 2.1 billion a year, just on these things. Which, for uh, comparison's sake, the annual revenue for the NBA, the whole thing, (laughs) 
the NBA was 10 billion last year. So you sort of look and you say, well, I, how big is this hobby? If you look at the amount that probably gets spent on breaks and the amount that's getting spent at card shops and at card shows and all the other ways that people spend their money. And like this hobby is large. It is very, very large. It's like as big as a professional sports league, probably, which is something phenomenal. But uh, the reason why I bring up the 175 million in the month of May 2023 is because if you compare it to May of 2022, the amount was around 230 million. In May, April and May of last year were two of the highest months we've ever had on record. I mean, that was a April and May of 2022 was basically the high end boom where the Giannis Prison Golds were going for half a million. Like the a year before that was like the boom of the Kobe top scrolling PSA 10 stuff, you know. Then the year after is the high end boom. And now we don't have any boom. We just have correction and we have a, a global, a, a macro economic situation of like caution and skepticism and concerns about recession and stuff like that. But but so the drop off from last year to this year, the year over year change is about a 30% decline in secondary market volume, 230 to 170, which is a big drop. But then if you go to card letter and you look at the price drop, so if you look at the price drop, over the last year for our three price range indexes, which is low end, mid range, and high end. Mid range is down 29%, low end is down 35%, high end is down 38%. So let's just like ballpark, like about 33%, maybe, I don't know, something like that. So basically prices have declined in parallel to volume decline, about the same amount, about the same percentage amount of decline. So it opens questions that I don't have the time or the ability perhaps to answer, but that one question that opens up is, has the number of participants in this hobby, has it even changed? Because the volume has gone down and the prices have gone down in equal amounts, which sort of implies like it's still possibly the same amount of people buying the same amount of things. They're just paying less for them now. Mm. They're, they've just, and, and, and like, dude, when I sit there working on cards every night, I think I touched on this on the crossover, and I'm just like looking at sales that come in. I'm just like, I'm just seeing this crazy cross section of buying things that just like is amazing to witness. It's just, and I, I, I you know, there's just, there's people spending their hard earned money on cards all the damn time. And I just see it flowing in and, and, and dude, like I'm, I get a little, you know, these are scary conditions for cards. Like, holy crap, you know, football index is down 49%. You know, Giannis's prism gold, one of his very best cards has suffered a loss of a few hundred grand. This is scary. This is as scary. This is as scary as it gets for an environment to buy cards <laughs> month after month. 175 million spends on cards, you know, and like his prices are coming down, but there's still this very robust buyer activity going on. I think it's really easy to see just based on that 175 million number in a 
in down conditions, why a company like Fanatics placed their bet in the sports card market. Um, it's it's incredible. Um, and it's it to me that it's the it's the passion and the continuing buying and these ridiculous sales you, you see because pro- someone probably needed a card to complete a set. Like it's that sort of confidence that I think what that will keep this hobby rolling and 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 continue to bring energy to it. And I know like we didn't even talk about like in shows and the nationals coming up, but like every report on the ground floor that I've heard of is that like shows are the best they've ever been. And there's tons of people and traffic, which are all good indicators. Um, there's a lot more we covered, but I want to just maybe before we close out, just the fanatics of it all, maybe like, they're obviously coming in. There's acquisition, the PWCC news, and there's going to be more. And it's just what big businesses do. And so we're all kind of sitting and waiting and seeing how it all plays out. But like, how do you think, I mean, I went into the Colts pro shop uh, with my daughter this weekend and it's just like fanatics, like they're running that show and they're doing it for every team. And like, it's efficient and like go online. It's all efficient. So like, some of what they're taking in the apparel industry, I'm sure they're going to apply like the operations behind that with the hobby. And we're going to like some stuff, some stuff we're not going to like, but like, I don't know, like they know what they're doing. So like, how do you think their entry into this during this period of time impacts anything we talked about during this conversation? Yeah, I think they've been uh, methodical and you know, the, they announced well in advance that their live breaking platform was coming, which is like they, they're going to be, I think, heavily focused on the primary market, which makes it so interesting that their latest acquisition is focused heavily on the secondary market. And I don't know that they were like targeting that acquisition at this moment. I think maybe the opportunity just arose and they took it sort of. But uh, here's the thing that I think about. I think about this, Brett. I think about the velocity of money. And I think about the flow of money. And if I were an economist talking to fanatics, knowing that they have grand ambitions and designs and knowing that they're very interested in controlling and capturing and improving this end-to-end user experience, uh, as an economist or a, a pretend economist, because I don't know nearly as much as a real economist knows, but, but pretending to be when I would say this, think about the velocity and the flow of money. Think about what it is, what function it serves every time that a collector, like, let's take, uh, we'll just make up a hypothetical example, John. Let's say John buys a nice Michael Jordan insert for $500, and then a year passes, and the card appreciates, and John sells it for $800. So John has recouped 500. He's made a profit of 300. He will pay taxes on that profit. But maybe when it's all said and done, John has a profit of $200. John takes that $200 plus his initial $500. And then he goes to his local hobby shop and he buys a brand new box of prison basketball, prison football. And then out, and, and then he buys some supplies. Maybe he buys like some penny sleeves and maybe some stuff. And then out of that box, he gets a Davis Mills uh, Prism Black, one of one, you know, third or fourth year or something. 
and then and maybe a few other cards, a few autographs, and then he grades those. So like he he kicks out, let's say another hundred bucks to grade like a few cards. And then when it's all said and done, maybe let's just say for the sake of the experiment, he's got a thousand dollars worth of cards left because it was a good box. He did well. And then he sells those thousand dollars worth of cards. And now he's got a thousand. Well, he got to take out some of the profits, but like maybe he's at like 900 bucks, you know, because you have to pay some taxes. And now he's got 900 bucks. And then he takes that 900 bucks and he goes on a marketplace, an auction marketplace, and he buys a Jerry Rice rookie. And then he holds that card for a few years. And on and on, okay, velocity of money, the turnover money, the flow of money. You know what happened at every step in that transaction from the collector's point of view was John took the money and put it right back into the hobby, right back in every time with a compounding effect. And if you have a bunch of Johns, <laughs> that sounds terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have a bunch of collectors out there who are putting the money back in reinvest it. And even if they lose, or even if they lose money, but they put it back in, they try again, they try again, they try again. The more money that's in the hands of the collectors, the more money that gets reinvested into the hobby. Now, let me paint a different scenario for you. John has his Michael Jordan card for 500, sells it for 800. But all along the way, at every step in this point, he's getting taxed, not by the government. They will be taxing him too if he makes profit, but by companies that have set out to capture a percentage of everything. And we have lots of those in the hobby because it's just such a, a profit-laden industry, or it was for a while. Well, if you ding John enough times, 10% here, 15% here, 20% here, eventually, not only have we taken away John's Profit, which like John will be fine. You know, whether John has nine hundred dollars to buy a Jerry Rice rookie, or he gets dinged, you know, fees, etc., or he has five hundred dollars to buy a Jerry Rice rookie, then he goes down a grade or two. It sucks, but like John's probably still going to keep on collecting. That's that's the bet that hobby companies are making. But but here's the part that I haven't heard discussed that's so important. What happens to that three or four hundred dollars that once was John's that he's putting back into the hobby that now is captured and becomes corporate profit? Is it getting put back into the hobby or is it not? Or is it being distributed as dividends? And most of the people who receive those dividends probably are not buying cards with it. So in other words, there has there, there has to be a balance. There needs to be corporate profits. Uh, it's good if we have an environment that generates interest and innovation. And there's a way that we grow the pie and corporate profits can grow and John's profits can grow and everybody can be happy. There is a world where that can happen. And I hope it does. But I implore the corporate level to think about how important the velocity, the flow and the turnover of money is in this hobby. Because if we're not careful, we can end up unintentionally taking, siphoning money out of the hobby ecosystem without intending to and shrinking the hobby ecosystem without intending to just because we never really thought about, we, never, we lost sight of the fact that if you leave margin for the collector, if you leave profit for the collector, the more you leave, the better for the size of the pie as a whole, because that money is going to go right back in. That's what mm -hmm. I'm saying.
Oh, baby. There could definitely be a part two to this one, but I, I have not thought about it from that perspective. So love the thoughts, love the passion. You can find them on the crossover Friday mm-hmm. nights. Card ladder, obviously. Chris, this was so much fun, man. Appreciate you coming on, dropping your knowledge. Hopefully everyone out there enjoyed this. Thanks for having me, buddy. Always enjoy when Chris drops by. Tons of insight, tons of information. Go check out him and the card ladder team are doing. Go check out that crossover. We'll drop tonight. We always love the crossover. Take care of yourself. Take care of others around you. More stacking slabs on the other side. 